Yes, I'm on. My goodness. Now, you may not have seen that particular campaign commercial. This uh, campaigner had some challenges raising funds for his campaign, so he only bought time on a local access cable channel in Ottumwa, Iowa. And here at TCF, I charged him a Snickers bar so he could have his commercial here at TCF. So. Now, for those of you who didn't catch the nuance of the political ad we just saw, that was called satire. Okay? Now, satire, of course, is a genre of literature and sometimes graphic and performing arts in which vices, follies, abuses, and shortcomings are held up to ridicule, ideally with the intent of shaming individuals and society itself into improvement. So that was satire. For satire to be effective at all, there has to be an element of truth about the folly of those things which are held up for ridicule. And there are few things more appropriate for satire than politics. Wouldn't you agree? Doesn't politics seem to bring out the worst of our shared human nature? As I've read and watched and listened to various news about politics, I've been very disturbed about the hostile, increasingly hostile attacks that are traded really by both sides of the campaigns that are going on now. And I began to think about how we as Christians are supposed to behave and how we're supposed to respond in a political season like this, one in which the country seems more divided than ever before. And that's kind of hard to believe that we could be more divided than ever before considering the closeness of the most recent national elections. I've asked people who are older than me and remember more about the political wranglings of our recent history than I do if this really is a time in which Americans are more divided, each side a little bit more hostile to the other than ever, or if it's just something that maybe I'm more aware of myself. The consensus seems to be that, yes, we are more divided, with each side more firmly entrenched in its position than ever before, at least in recent history. Of course, we still have a large segment of our society that's not adamantly on the right or on the left. They're somewhere in the middle. Some of you may have heard my theory, so if you've heard this before, please excuse me. But I think that in our nation, we have about 20% of the people who are on the right who are very hardline conservative. These are people who are entrenched in their position and they rarely, if ever, change. Then I think we have about 20% on the left who are hardline progressives and they are just as entrenched in their position and rarely, if ever, change. And then I think right in the middle, what we have is about 60%, and I call them the squishy 60. They're the 60% who truly decide every election that we have. They may lean primarily left or right, depending on what's going on in the culture that day. They can go either way, depending on the issues of the day, which of course can change. And I think depending largely on the economy and how it's impacting their lives and their perception of how an individual candidate can address those issues. Anyway, that's just my theory. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read from verses 11 through 17. Peter writes here, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now there are many other passages of Scripture that we could point to this morning that address the responsibility of Christians as citizens. Romans 13, of course, is one of those. Another one is Mark 12. We'll reference a little bit from both of those passages today. But this morning I'd like to focus on some ideas in this particular passage of Scripture that we just read. I'm calling this morning's message Honorable Citizenship. Have you ever in your life heard as much trash-talking as you've heard in recent weeks, as much bad-mouthing of one side versus the other. Let me read a few things that I've heard or read just this past week. How about these quotes? How can somebody run a campaign this dishonest and think he's going to have any credibility running for president? He is fundamentally a salesman, and in this worldview it would be illogical not to tailor sales to the needs of different audiences. He hates farming, hates the military, hates the U.S., and we hate him. They are oligarchs and racists clad in the skin of dead elephants. He represents everything bad about humanity. Now, those are just the things that Jim Grinnell said about me in the most recent elders meeting. Actually, these are real quotes. These are real quotes that I pulled from various news sources made by one side about the other, and I'll let you on your own. Guess who said what about whom? There's hatred at the core of so much political talk these days on both sides. I did an internet search for the phrase, hate Romney, and I found 188 million web pages with the words, hate Romney. And of course, you can also like the Facebook page titled, I hate Mitt Romney. And there were 279 million web pages with the words, hate Obama. And in our uniquely American way, with our incessant desire for equal time, there's also a Facebook page called I Hate Obama. There's even a website called Jesus Hates Obama. And this hatred goes both ways. It reminded me of an important passage of Scripture that I think we, as believers in an alien culture, must remember in the course of a heated election. It's Ephesians 6.12, very familiar passage. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you're a Republican, your enemy is not Barack Obama. If you're a Democrat, your enemy is not Mitt Romney. Your political opponent is not your enemy. Your spiritual opponent is. That's why, as we'll look at this morning, even though I believe that we should participate in our government, however, in the way we speak and behave, especially in public, we as Christians should be above the fray. Certainly, we should be above the name-calling and defamation of character that is consistent with so much we see in politics today. Above all, we are to be His witnesses. What kind of a barrier, think about this, what kind of a barrier do you think it puts between you and someone 
for whom you're praying to come to Christ, maybe someone you've even witnessed to, for them to hear you slam their favorite candidate, especially in a hateful way. So Peter tells us here in this passage of Scripture, we are first citizens of the kingdom of God. Now this does not mean we can't be patriotic. It doesn't mean we can't love our country. It doesn't even mean we can't care deeply about our politics. But here's what I want to make the point about this morning. It's about perspective and it's about priorities. This passage prioritizes God's glory and the gospel over politics. We should not stoop to the tactics of personal character assassination. And I'll admit, I have some very strong negative opinions of some people involved in various levels of politics. But more so, I have some very strong negative opinions for some of the moral stands that they take or don't take. So what they stand for might make me cringe, but these individuals are not my enemy. As believers, we can legitimately love or judge actions and behaviors as well as what people say. So voting records and public statements are fair game. However, we cannot and must not judge motivation or heart attitudes. Only God can do that. Yes, the Word says we're known by our fruit, but let's agree to be careful to remember that our battle is not against individual people. The Word tells us to pray for our leaders. It says absolutely nothing about how good those leaders are. Let's not forget who Peter was writing to when he said in this passage we just read, honor the emperor. Let's not forget to whom Paul was writing when he wrote in Romans 13, be subject to the governing authorities. It doesn't tell us to pray for your leaders as long as they're good ones. How do we submit, as Peter wrote in verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every authority? How do we, as Jesus said in Mark 12 and Matthew 22, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. While the immediate context there was taxes, I believe we can make a strong case that the larger sense of this statement and the other passages we're looking at is that we have a responsibility as earthly citizens to submit to and participate in our government. Now again, we must remember In 1 Peter, as well as in Romans, the apostles were writing to a world that was ruled by Rome. And Jesus was referring to a world government that was governed by Rome as well. You didn't get to vote on your taxes in ancient Rome. Rome was a cruel government, hardly a Christian government in any way, shape, or form. Peter's world was especially governed by a cruel government. Tyrant. And so if followers of Jesus could be encouraged to support Rome with their taxes, which government today, no matter how corrupt, can't Christians support? Again, this doesn't mean that we support absolutely everything that a government does or allows. And we must always remember that our first allegiance is to God. Yet these admonitions to submit and participate and be honorable citizens still apply. One commentary notes, when Peter told his readers to submit to the civil authorities, he was speaking of the Roman Empire under Nero, a notoriously cruel tyrant. Obviously, he was not telling believers to compromise their consciences. 
as Peter had told the high priest years before, we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. But in most aspects of daily life, it was possible and desirable for Christians to live according to the law of their land. So we do have to discern what, in what we have to obey God and in what we can obey and submit to our government. But Peter's reminding us that while our citizenship is in heaven, after all, he refers to us as sojourners and aliens and exiles. He's also not advocating we just withdraw from the world. He's advocating an honorable citizenship. Of course, how we choose to participate in government is a matter for individual believers to decide as conscience and conviction move us. There's nothing in Scripture that requires us to vote or not vote, to be active in a political campaign or not. But whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. So at the very least, this means we should live honorably as citizens of this nation into which God has placed us. Here's what else it means. It also means not buying into the political idolatry of any side, playing tit for tat, spinning the truth or lying, or embracing hypocrisy or whitewashing our problematic candidates. It means refraining from rhetoric that reveals we worship false gods. Let's be respectable and respectful participants. If Peter could write to believers to honor the king, these are believers who didn't have any say at all in who governed them. Can you imagine what he might write to Christians like us who have the privilege of electing their leaders and then sometimes don't participate? When Jesus says we are to be salt and light in our world, don't you think that at least one of the ways we can be salty? Don't you think that at least one of the ways we can shed light on darkness is in the voting booth? There's no scripture that says we must exercise our right to vote. Yet there's an old saying that's still true. Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. I encourage you to think about what's important too. Consider, for example, the fact that the person elected president will appoint federal judges and perhaps Supreme Court justices who will serve for life. And they will influence the moral issues in our nation for generations to come. I'd encourage you to consider a candidate's convictions on important issues. How do you evaluate that? Well, it's not that hard, really. You examine his or her voting record, if they have one. You examine their documented positions on the issues. In politics, you are what you vote. You consider biblical instructions on those issues, if there are. In some cases, some of the issues, there are no biblical instructions, and we still have to discern using biblical principles. And then you ask yourself, does this candidate share my values? Founder Noah Webster said this. He said, in selecting men for office, let principle be your guide. Look to his character. When a citizen gives his vote to a man of known immorality, he abuses his trust. He sacrifices not only his own interest, but that of his neighbor. He betrays the interest of his country. So consider voting for a candidate who most closely represents your values. As believers, our values should be informed and shaped by the Word of God. I found one preacher who said this, 
Some of you here are probably straight-ticket Republicans and would die at the thought of voting for a Democrat, even if the Republican was a sleazebag. But let me tell you, I would vote for a moral Democrat over an immoral Republican any day of the week, and vice versa. And the same goes for those who are straight-ticket Democratic voters. If you are a slave to your party's affiliation, you are setting aside biblical principles for political expediency. I once saw a study which showed that nearly two-thirds of Americans say that their faith has very little to do with their voting decisions. Well, let me say this. Your faith should inform not just your voting decisions, but every decision. If your faith in Christ, your relationship with Him, your understanding of His Word does not shape the choices that you make, then it's not worth much. Charles Colson wrote, Societies are tragically vulnerable when the men and women who compose them lack character. It cannot stand unless it is populated by people who will act on motives superior to their own immediate interest. Isn't that one of the things our Christian faith is about? Acting on motives that are superior to our own immediate interest? We read in Philippians 2.4, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. I think that should apply to our political choices as well. We read in Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be responsible for the wicked ruling. I have enough to groan about. Our faith should inform our vote. More than that, our faith should inform our behavior. Voting is just one behavior that can be salt and light in a dark world. I think it's important to remember that we only undermine our political position when we don't reveal our faith in our actions and in what we put our effort, time, and resources into. I've also been a little troubled this election season and in past elections with how closely aligned faith seems to be with particular political parties. While there may be times when elements of one party's political platform more clearly line up with biblical truth than another's, it's a trap to rely on. That's the key words there, to rely on one party. And we cannot ever rely on the political process alone to change anyone or to change any nation. John Fisher writes, you can never draw a straight line from biblical truth to one's political party platform. Political parties do not align themselves biblically. Politics is about compromise, and compromise and the truth mix about as well as oil and water. Christians must also be aware of the fact that the answer to the human dilemma is never a political one. Sometimes this is hard to remember when intense feelings are involved. You think there's intense feelings involved? in this election? Political decisions may affect the general nature of society, but the answer to the human dilemma is and always will be the gospel. And the gospel can function in any society and in any political environment as the spread of Christianity and even communist countries has indicated. Peter wrote of this in the passage we read at the beginning. Let's look at it again. And let me read two verses this time from the New Living Translation, starting with verse 12. Be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. 
It is God's will that your good lives should silence those who make foolish accusations against you. Now, haven't we seen a lot of Republicans accusing Democrats of doing wrong? Haven't we seen a lot of the reverse, Democrats accusing Republicans of doing wrong, especially on some of the key moral issues of our day? We see this division. We see these accusations. Imagine the power of our behavior, not just our political rhetoric, in influencing these issues and making a real difference. Pregnancy centers helping women have more impact than politics ever will. That doesn't mean we dismiss politics again. But think about this. When people see our honorable behavior, our good deeds, when they see us doing good, when they, seeing not, when they see us not just saying don't have an abortion, they see us not just supporting a pro-life politician, but really helping women, there's more potential to silence their ignorant talk. There's more potential that they may end up actually glorifying God. Imagine that. Imagine that. It's a whole lot harder to argue politics when people see you genuinely care when they witness our love in action, not just hear our words or see our politics. It's putting words into action. It's living good lives among the pagans who might otherwise accuse us of not caring. And when they see it, they might begin to consider, hey, maybe they do care. In verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2, the word see here is interesting That verse again says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. The word here means to look upon or oversee, inspect. In the New Testament, it means generally to behold or to contemplate. So it's not just see, but it's to think about what they see. One commentary says the word implies prolonged observation. Another says it could also be translated gaining insight by your good deeds. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about our political process? The hatred, the rancor, the accusations. Wouldn't it be tremendous if we could put that part of the political process to rest simply by what we do? Our political rhetoric seldom helps anyone gain insight. I don't know about you, but I absolutely hate those political talk shows that just end up being people shouting past one another. What does that accomplish? Does it inform you, or does it instead cause you to think more deeply about the issues, or does it rather inflame your passions even more and make you more entrenched in the position that you already hold? What we do, on the other hand, can accomplish something, and it can cause people to stop and to think. I'm under no illusions that this will be completely 100% effective. As believers, no matter how good our behavior, no matter how numerous or righteous our deeds, there will always be those who are offended by our message. But what I'm saying is there are enough barriers to the gospel without making our political stance another barrier. Jesus said he's the only way to heaven. That's very offensive to much of the world. Let's make sure that if there's any offense, it won't be offense because of the politics that we espouse, or worse still, the way we talk about politics. 
but let our good deeds silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Let's make sure if there's any offense that it's not because we vote Republican, but it's not because we vote Democrat. Let it be because we not only proclaim, and that may indeed include sometimes political proclamations about moral issues, but let it be because we live the truth. Now, if people are offended by that, we're in very good company. Jesus and Peter and Paul, all of whom we've quoted this morning, proclaimed the truth and they paid for it with their lives. So we see the word outlines some simple points about honorable citizenship. We are to be good citizens of the earthly kingdom in which we live. Yet, no earthly kingdom can be identified solely and exclusively with God's people, just as no political party can be identified with believers. We are also first accountable, primarily accountable to God. The epicenter of Christ's kingdom is not located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, just in case you didn't know that. And the purposes of God have never been thwarted at the hands of men. That is a streak that's not about to end this coming Tuesday, November 6th. Such a recognition isn't quietism, it isn't escapism, it's just biblical Christianity. We must remember that Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, as well as every other candidate for national, state, and local office, are simply like you and me. They are feeble creatures. They are worthy of our honor as leaders. Peter and Paul and Jesus himself all tell us that in Scripture. Yet they are not, they are not worthy of our hope. They are not worthy of our hope. Our hope is in Christ and in Him alone. Remember that just a few weeks ago we looked at Psalm 46. And what did we read there? Everything, everything that applied in that message applies to this message. Among other things, let me remind you, we read verse 1 which tells us that God is our refuge and our strength. And we read verse 6 which says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters his voice, the earth melts. So whatever happens in Tuesday's election, whether your preferred candidate wins or not, we can trust in God's sovereignty. We can trust in his perfect plan. We can remember that he is still on the throne. There's no election for God. There's no term limits for him either. We can remember that he's still on the throne. We can remember that he is the one who puts kings into place on earth and he is the one who removes them. Think about this. Authority, by its very nature, reflects God's authority. We see this in Romans 13. We read some of verse 1 a moment ago, that those human authorities have been put in place by God. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So a government may not be, probably isn't, specifically Christian. But in God's economy, government in general serves His purposes. It's interesting to hear the way religion is brought into campaigns these days. It might be nice to think about one president uh, over a hundred years ago who I believe had a good perspective on this. He said, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. 
that of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Abraham Lincoln said that in his second inaugural address, and, and the division he speaks of here was the Civil War. I think that's a little more divided than we are now. Hopefully we won't get that far. So let's remember why we're doing what we're doing and what we're not doing this coming Tuesday. We're casting a vote for the common good. We are strangers and aliens in this world, and we participate in this and any election to seek the welfare of our earthly city. We read in Jeremiah 29.7 that very idea. It says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And let's also remember this. This choice will almost always require Christians to weigh bad against better and do without what is best. But as Clark Forsyth argues in uh, Politics for the Greatest Good, there is no moral compromise when we make the aim of politics not the perfect good, but the greatest good possible. Small victories plus realistic strategy plus perseverance can make a tremendous difference over time. Hope is not delusional and change can come but we have to work within the limits of what is possible. So as we consider our vote this week, let's take this approach. Let's remember our citizenship is a dual citizenship, and let's remember that we exhibit our heavenly citizenship not only in the way we vote, but even more importantly in the way we live as believers in our culture. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the privilege that you've given us in this nation of casting votes for who our leaders will be. We know that there's many parts of the world today where they still can't do this, and clearly they couldn't do that in the times the Bible was written. But yet, Father, we see these admonitions to submit to and participate in government. Father, help us to have your discernment. Help us to have your wisdom. Help us to cast votes that are in line with the principles you desire. Ultimately, Lord, we trust that your purposes will be accomplished Tuesday. Whether our candidates win or not, each of us as individuals, Lord, can trust in you and look to you as our source of hope, as our only source of hope. Father, help us to be honorable citizens, to participate in a godly, respectful, peaceable way in our country's culture and in our country's politics but to look to you as the King of kings and Lord of lords and ultimate sovereign and rely on you for any hoped for and needed change in our lives and in the lives of the people around us and in the lives of our nation. Thank you, Father God, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.